All right, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You guys may have a seat. It is good to be with you guys this afternoon. My name is Pastor JD, if I haven't met you. Um, and I want to take a second before we even get into the sermon, I just want to take a second to address the statement that we all read together. Um, you know, uh, Sarah said it well, that really that is what we call the, the first half of the gospel. It's half of a full picture. And, and that first half of the gospel is often what we call the bad news of the gospel. It's funny because the gospel is the good news, but there is bad news in the gospel, at least from a certain perspective. From the perspective of this culture today that we're not that bad and everything's just not that bad, the gospel is saying, no, we really are that bad. Ephesians chapter 2 says this about us. Paul is speaking to the Ephesians who are now Christians, but he's talking about them in their past before they had come to Christ. And he says, you were dead in trespasses, in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And that is the bad news, that we, we find that the Bible declares over us that we are dead. Maybe alive in the sense that clinically, maybe our hearts are beating and our brainwaves are functioning, but when it comes to our ability to come to a holy God, the Bible describes our situation in the starkest terms. We are dead. And in fact, the statement that we just set up there not, it says not only are we dead, but God has a just requirement in line with his character to punish us for sin. And so this, this statement hangs over us. It hangs over every single person that has ever done business with the truth of Scripture. It hangs over us and it causes us to cry out, is there any way out? Is there any way out from this judgment that, that, let's be honest, if we really search our hearts, if we really quiet our hearts and know that we, no matter where we are or what we say we believe, deep down inside there is this sense that I am not right. There is something not quite right in me. And I don't want to leave us hanging on a statement like that. There's a story of, uh, of a famous preacher named D.L. Moody, and he, he preached in the, the I, I believe it was in the, in the either late 1800s or early 1900s, and he decided to leave the congregation the way you would leave a TV show on a cliffhanger. He left the congregation that he was preaching to, many, many people who had never trusted in Christ before, with a statement like this about God, about their disobedience and about their righteous punishment that was coming their way. And he decided to stop that night. And he decided to wait like a cliffhanger for the next week until he could bring the true good news of Christ and what God has done for all of us. And do you know what happened in the meantime? The Chicago Fire the famous Chicago fire that killed many thousands of people in the city of Chicago. And many people heard only half of the gospel before walking away and perishing and perhaps never having heard that there is a way out. And so I want you guys to hear clearly before I even begin our text this, this afternoon that there is a way out. God himself, the just judge, who is just in his punishment of our sins, has provided for us a way out, and it is in his son, Jesus Christ. And here's how it works. The judgment that God must righteously give for your sins and mine fell upon Jesus. That his death, his punishment that came upon him was not because of his own sin. It was for the sins of all who would one day come to trust in him. And that could be you in this room this afternoon. 
So I want you to know the good news. And by the way, in this question and answer series that we're doing, the good news comes next week, but I couldn't wait. So the good news, you'll hear it next week. You'll hear what exactly God has done. But in the meantime, I want you to know that Christ has made a way that we don't have to stand under this. We don't have to stand before God where he, he must righteously judge us for our sins. So run to Christ as the only way out from this punishment. Uh, that is true for each and every human being on the planet. With that said, let's look at uh, Isaiah chapter 42. We're already turned there, hopefully. Isaiah chapter 42, we're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah. I'd like to pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, would you come in power and in your glory because we want to see you in your word. We want to see you in your righteous judgment. Yes, we do. Yes, we want to know, Lord, you in your righteous judgment. But we also want to know you in the justness of sending your innocent holy son to earth that he might die and have your righteous punishment fall upon him. We want to hear the gospel and we want to see it in your word. So God, may we hear now, may we have ears to hear, and may your Holy Spirit be present to guide my words and also our hearing this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. A few months ago, Disney came out with a brand new show to kick off their, their new streaming service. Disney Plus is the streaming service, and the show was called The Mandalorian. Now, if you're... If you're a Star Wars fan, you, you just ate this up. And if you're not a Star Wars fan, you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. And that is, that's okay. Just follow along with the story. I promise it'll, it'll make sense and I won't, get, like, I won't become a Star Wars nerd on you all of a sudden up here. The Mandalorian is a live action series that takes place in the Star Wars universe. And get ready because I'm about to spoil the first episode for you. In the first episode, it featured a new character that Star Wars nerds just went gaga over. He was, you guys, many of you know the little green character in Star Wars, Yoda, okay? He was a Jedi, right? And he was like kind of the, 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 the main good guy. He trained Luke Skywalker, the main protagonist of the story, and, uh, and everybody loves Yoda. Like, how can you not love Yoda, right? And so, we found that there was another species in the Mandalorian of Yoda's species, and, and Star Wars fans just went crazy over it, and, and it was a baby version of Yoda. And so everybody called it Baby Yoda. Now, let me just correct you. Don't go around saying that Yoda had a baby. He didn't have a baby, okay? They didn't have a baby, but there's a, there's a version of Yoda, and it's a baby, and everyone has gone crazy. And I just ruined the whole first episode for you. Not the season. Just the first episode, so sorry about that. And the point is this, people went nuts. You probably saw it, the memes, the, 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 the stuff on the internet about Baby Yoda. People wanted to get Baby Yoda merchandise. And strangely enough, Disney as a company decided to skip the Christmas season in producing Baby Yoda merchandise. There was nothing available from Disney during the Christmas. I was certain that Baby Yoda was going to be the next Tickle Me Elmo or, you know, you name your hot item that year that had to have been purchased, right? Well, I thought Baby Yoda for sure was going to be going for five, $600, but they didn't. But that didn't stop Baby Yodas from showing up all over the internet. They were everywhere as these, 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 these companies that were counterfeits to Disney, they were not the true Disney, began producing Baby Yoda material. Now, I'm not going to take time to show you some of the pictures, but I did a little research. Some of these Baby Yoda dolls were flat-out creepy. They looked nothing like the cute little Baby Yoda that we saw. They were just poor uh, renditions of this, and some of them were going for five or $600 because they were passing off as something that was real, something that was quite fraudulent and fake and counterfeit. They thought that they, people that purchased them thought that they had something real in their hands, but instead they had a cheap knockoff. 
The cheap knockoffs of the world aren't just consigned to junk internet companies that try to sell us stuff on the internet. Every day, we hold on to counterfeits and revere them as precious to us when they are actually nothing. They're junk. And yet we hold them as if they are something true, but they're false. And I'm talking, of course, about idols. These things in our lives, not statues anymore. That's the way human beings used to be, you know. We used to actually bow down to individual statues. Not statues anymore. Ideas. Things that we maybe purchase. Things that we, we have in our heart. And we don't bow down prostrate before these things, you understand. But it's the same heart posture of those who bow down. We may just not have the action behind it. And we hold them, and we keep them, and we treasure them, and we pet them, and we say how great our life is because we hold on to these things. But what we're going to see in our text today is that the God of the universe is going to call out the knock-off gods that pretend to be Him, the ones that pretend to bring true and lasting joy when in fact they are counterfeits. And then we're going to see this same God point us away from those idols, from them to the true source of happiness and joy, God's servant that we are going to be introduced to for the first time this afternoon that we've been waiting on in the book of Isaiah. So he's going to turn us away from the idols and he's going to turn us to his servant, this servant with a capital S, if you will, who has been prophesied to come. And we're going to learn now for the first time directly about him. So let's look, before we look at the text, let's get some context for where we are at. God declared last week in Isaiah 40 that he is a king who has come to a rebellious people, and he sent his heralds to proclaim to this rebellious people that he has been victorious in battle. And we talked about that battle ultimately was the cross, where he was victorious over death. And he's now sent his heralds out to proclaim to everyone everywhere that he reigns victorious and to lay down the weapons of your rebellion and to put your trust in him. And then what God does after chapter 40 in Isaiah is he goes through and he begins to declare his power over all of the false potentials that we would turn to other than him. In other words, chapter 40 is about turn to me, turn to me, turn to me, God says. And yet he knows that in our hearts we are conflicted in turning to him because there are other gods out there. There are other gods with a lowercase g, put them in quotes, that we could turn to. And so what God does next is he begins to lay out his case, if you will, for why those gods are nothing. And let's see him do it now in Isaiah 41. Look, just look back from where you are a little bit, verses 21 to 23. Look at what God says now regarding these false gods. Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 23. Set forth your case says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Hopefully you can imagine this scene for a second here. The God of the universe has arranged all of the statues of these, these, these idols all in front of him. He's laid them all out, and now he stands as if to speak to these statues. Imagine the scene for a second. And he says to these statues, we're going to have a little competition. Here's how the competition is going to go. 
I'm going to declare the future, says the true and living God. And then he says to these idols, he goes, I invite any of you idols, any of you statues sitting here to also declare the future. I'm going to declare the future. I invite you to declare the future. And let's see who can actually declare what is to come to pass. Oh, oh, you aren't saying anything. Is there something wrong? Have I set set this competition up unfairly? You aren't speaking. You aren't declaring the future. Okay, verse 23. Notice verse 23 now. Well, then, if you won't declare the future, do something. You You could do good or you could do harm. I'm okay with either. Do something to declare that you actually exist. Oh, wait, you can't do anything either? Huh. And people say the Bible doesn't have humor in it. I think this is one of those moments of just God is being funny and at the same time showing the ridiculousness of human beings in the way that we pursue things that are not Him. Here's his conclusion in Isaiah 41, verse 29. He says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. So after testing these idols, so to speak, he declares over them that they're nothing. He has rendered his judgment. Now, let me pause and take a moment for a little bit of apologetics. You guys know what apologetics is? It's the defense of the faith. It means that there are, there are people who are going to call into question almost every single point of Scripture, and there are times to stop for a moment and notice, and notice, and actually go on and give a proper defense for what sometimes people believe about Scripture. So, let me go ahead and say this, that some scholars like to say that Isaiah didn't write Isaiah, okay? And they also like to say that it was actually written after all of the events that Isaiah predicted, okay? So this book is full of prophecy. If you have not been with us, you may not know. It's filled with predictions about the future. And the way a lot of scholars get around that is they simply just say, well, it was written afterwards. All of Isaiah was written afterwards. There's no prophetic stuff here. There's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no claim to, to, to actually being written by God here or that God is actually speaking because it was all actually written after the case. Now, I want to I wanna, I wanna call you guys to, to consider for a minute. How does this argument work if this is actually being written after the time? Okay? That's God's argument. God's argument is I'm staking my claim as God on the fact that I can actually predict the future. But the scholars claim that the Bible was actually, this part of the Bible was actually written way later so that there's no predictive stuff in it. Okay? So this is like, the, the argument works like this. This is like me saying to you that I'm a really, really special person, a prophet, whatever you want to call it, because I can predict the future, and then I proceed to tell you about the last three presidents and who got elected. And you're going, what? That doesn't, what, you haven't backed up your claim at all. That's really silly. Why would you tell us about the past if you're telling us that you can predict the future? So in order for this statement at all to make any sense whatsoever, it must be that this was written beforehand and actually made a statement about somebody, something that people could test and say, we'll see if that comes to pass, because that's what God is doing here. If I am God, these things will come to pass the way I am declaring them to come to pass. But God is comparing himself now, end of side point, by the way, God is comparing himself now with these idols, and he says that they are a delusion. He says that they are works, their works are nothing, which means they can't do anything. And he says that they are futile, or as he says, an empty wind is what these idols are. And so he invites us to observe. He says, behold, in the first words of, first, of, of, of verse 29, behold, that's to you. That's to you if you're reading right now. That's to you if you're hearing my voice. Look, 
That's what the word means. Look and behold, observe them. Take careful thought about these idols. And when we do, we're going to realize something. That sin is not only wrong, it is illogical. That sin is not only wrong, it is illogical. It does not follow logic. It means that your lust is not just wrong, it is stupid. I'm not calling you stupid. You are made in the image of God. I am saying that your lust that you are chasing after is stupid. Your jealousy and revenge and failure to forgive is not just wrong, it is idiotic. I'm not calling you that. Your love of your own image in the mirror is not just wrong, it is lame. I'm not calling you lame. You are the image of God. Do you know what that means? It means that you reflect in who you are as a created being, His beauty and His worth and His majesty. You are a reflection. Now imagine something if I were to live my life in such a way that I, lo- I said that I loved my wife and yet I held up a mirror at all times to make sure I had her reflection in it and then kissed the reflection of my wife and hugged the mirror because it presented a reflection of my wife. And I spent my entire life and our entire marriage with this mirror held up trying to just simply get at that which is not actually her. And what we do when we love the person in the mirror is we are loving a reflection and we are far too unworthy as simple reflectors for our hearts to be fully enjoying what we are worshiping. And so our idolatry that we go into is illogical. It is treasuring and holding something that isn't going to do what you think it will do because it isn't what you think it is. John Piper has an illustration where he imagines a a woman holding a pendant and she's standing in the dark. There's no lights on in the room and she's holding this pendant and she's telling everybody how valuable this pendant is that she has, this necklace is that she has around her neck and she's holding it and rubbing it and talking to us about how precious this pendant is to her, and then the lights come on, and she realizes she isn't holding a pendant, she's holding a dead cockroach. And she's just been telling you how wonderful it is, but now she screams and she throws it, because the true worth of the item has now come to her mind and to her senses. And he describes it as this is how we are with our idolatry. We treasure it and we love it and we, and we want to just tell everybody else about it, of how great it is. And one day the lights will come on and we will see the truth that our idolatry can do nothing for us. In fact, worse, it will destroy us. It is less than nothing. It will actively Destroy us. Your treasuring of pornography does absolutely nothing for you. Worse, it destroys you. But every time you're tempted, you are fed the same lie all over again, and you believe it again, that this thing is truly going to help me. This thing is good. This thing is helpful to me in this particular moment. And friends, I have been there and am there regularly across the board with sin. This is how we are as humans. This is what we do as human beings. But God loves his people. He loves his people, and he wants them to know the truth 
about these things. He wants them to know that idols can't make you happy. They can't do anything at all. And he wants his people to know true joy rather than the idiotic things they are pursuing. And so it is in this context of the impotence and the futility of these idols that God now introduces his servant. And what we're going to see is that God's servant acts while these idols do nothing. I want us to look now at Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And I want us to see the word again, behold. Do you all see there? In 41, 29, it says the word behold. And then in 42, verse 1, we see the word behold again. Do you see that? That's telling me that there are two commands now in Scripture to you and to me. And those commands are put your eyes upon first the idols. Get your eyes on them. Look at them carefully. And now, chapter 42, verse 1, behold my servant. Look at him. Look carefully at him. And consider these two things side by side, the false gods and this true God who is the servant who is going to act now. He is going to act, whereas these idols failed to act. So here's the main point, if you're taking notes. The main point is this. In contrast to worthless idols, Jesus Christ is worthy of our full dependence and worship. I'm going to say that one more time. In contrast to worthless idols, Jesus Christ is worthy of our full dependence and worship. So this section of Scripture is making a comparison now between the servant who is Jesus Christ. And if you haven't seen that yet up to this point, in the coming weeks, this will become abundantly clear that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the prophecies about this servant and we're going to see now that that is him. And we've, we've covered now, we're looking at Jesus Christ in these next four verses, and we've covered the worthlessness of the idols. Let's now look at who he is as the worthy servant. Let's look at 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Here's point one if you're taking notes. Love what God loves. Choose what God chooses. Love what God loves. Choose what God chooses. Notice how God speaks about this servant here. First, God says that he upholds this servant. Do you notice the words there? He upholds his servant. And the verb means that God the Father is holding out his servant. He's holding him and keeping him and protecting him and making sure that this servant is doing his will. Now, now, this is getting at the interchange that we will see in the way Jesus prays to the Father and the way Jesus' will is connected with the Father's will. You guys remember the point? We've brought it up many times where Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the garden and it's that moment of great agony before he goes to the cross and he says, Father, if it, if, if it be your will, remove this from me. If there be any other way, but... Not my will, but your will be done. What we're seeing there is a picture of God the Father holding his servant out in such a way, keeping him, caring for him in such a way that he is connected in his will with this servant. Now, some of you find that strange language. Wait a minute, isn't Jesus God? And I would argue right now, I'm going to say this many, many times over, that Jesus in his humanity... Jesus in his humanity is an example to you and I of a perfect obedience to his Father. That he did that by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he was so in tune and connected to the power of the Holy Spirit that he was not a phantom moving around doing these things. He was not a phantom when he went to the cross. He was not, a, he was not this, this ghost-like figure who just sort of floated through everything that he did. That he actually struggled the way a human being struggles but was dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's what's amazing about that. 
We can say to you and, you and me, be an example. He's an example to us. He's an example of following after and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit because he did it perfectly. And you say, well, doesn't that remove his godness? I don't think it does at all. I don't think it does at all. I think it shows the humanity of Jesus and yet does not remove the fact that he is God because no human being would ever be able to do what Jesus did. And yet we are, we are given, you know what Romans 8 tells us? The same spirit that was in Jesus now dwells in you. That has, does that encourage anybody in your fight against sin? That the same spirit that dwelled in Christ, and you know what it says in Romans 8? That rose him from the dead dwells in you. You see, Christ is, is our Savior, but he's also supposed to be our example of how we live because we've been given now the same spirit that he had in him. There's so much more to be said there, and the potential for confusion abounds, I realize. But realize that God the Father is now upholding and holding out his sermon. Second, we find in this text here in verse 1 that God says he has chosen this servant. Do you see that there? Third, God speaks about the love and the joy in his heart for this servant. So he's chosen the servant. He loves the servant. And by contrast, let's remind ourselves of what God said about the idols. Chapter 41, verse 24, Behold, God says, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. But what does God say about the servant? I choose my servant. I have chosen my servant. The contrast couldn't be greater. What we are seeing here, this love between God the Father and the servant, which we will identify later as Jesus Christ, is what we call, get ready, intra-Trinitarian love. You know what that means? Inside the Trinity. It's the, it's the love of the Father for the Son. It's the love that has been going on since the foundation of the world, since the world was ever created, of love towards Father from the Son, and then love from the Father to the Son, back and forth and back and forth. We see that in Scripture. Jesus actually speaks about it in the, in the book of John. We see that the Father loves the servant, which we will see clearly, is Christ. And so, what are we called to do in verse 1? Let's consider this. What are we called to do in verse 1? It's that we are called to love what God loves. He upholds his servant and he says, here is my servant. I love him. I have chosen him. What are we supposed to do in this? What do we do when the Bible does something like that? We say, God, I want a heart that chooses what you choose. I want a heart that loves what you love. And this happens, note, even before we see the servant do anything. Before we see him act toward anyone, God is calling us to love him. God is calling us to choose him. Not because of what he has done for us, but because of who he is. Oh, this point. This point needs to be made today, and it needs to be made in this room for each and every one of us. We love him not because of what he has done for us, but because of who he is. Here's Jonathan Edwards, a scholar in the 18th century and a pastor. Here's what he says. It's a bit of a long quote. I want you to notice if you lose it, catch the end. Okay, catch the end of the quote. He says, this is the difference between the joy of the hypocrite. Now, that word means to him, not a Christian. A person who's not a Christian. This is the difference between the joy of the hypocrite and the joy of the true saint. The hypocrite rejoices in himself. Self is the first foundation of his joy. The true saint rejoices in God. True saints have their minds in the first place inexpressively pleased and delighted with the sweet ideas of the glorious and amiable nature of the things of God. And this is the spring of all their delights and the cream of all their pleasures. But the dependence of the affections of hypocrites is in a contrary order. The, 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 
the love of hypocrites goes the other direction. Notice this now. They first rejoice that they are made so much of by God. And then, on that ground, he seems in a sort lovely to them. Are you guys catching that? Jonathan Edwards is talking about something that happens where we hear about God, that God is just falling all over himself in love with us, and we go, hey, okay, all right, I'm catching the the logic here. God thinks I'm really great. I think I'm really great. So, So if God thinks I'm really great, then God must be a pretty, he must be really great. And we laugh, but oh my goodness, the subtlety of how this comes into our thinking. The subtlety across the evangelical spectrum, and I have no particular church in mind when I say this, the subtlety across the evangelical world when it comes to churches talking about how much Jesus is fawning all over you as a tactic, right? As a tactic to say, do you see? Do you see how much? Do you see how much he cares? Do you see how much he values? Now love him because he values you. Oh, we have to be careful. We have to get more theologically precise than that. We have to be careful that the first love we have for Jesus is not because he first thinks that we are great. Because the danger in that is that the first love might, in fact, be ourselves. That first and foremost, we may be just believing that we are great and we are the God of the universe. And if anybody loves us, well, then they're worthy. Some of you will say, what about the verse that says we love because God first loved us? Anybody get that verse in their mind when I was talking here? I'm glad you did. This is the kind of Christians we want to be. Get a verse in your mind that counters this. Okay? But here's the difference. That love that is talking about in that context right there is the love that he expressed 2,000 years ago when he went to the cross. And it's that love on the cross that was purchased, the fact that you actually had faith in him in the first place. In other words, you were able to come to God not because of what is innate within you, but because of the love of what Christ did on the cross, which purchased your faith to actually believe in him. But you see how easily we can twist that into, well, if he loves me so much, then I love him. But notice that God is calling us right here to love this servant before we see him do anything, anything at all. We are simply supposed to love him for who he is. Let's move on. Isaiah 42, verse 1, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The idea here is that the spirit of God is in the servant. I have spoken before about the fact that Jesus, and I I even said it today, that Jesus as a human was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do what he did. And the fact that Jesus lived as a human Dependent on the Spirit means, again, that He can be an example for us in how we are to live. Now, what is this servant going to do? What does it say now that he's going to do in the text? He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. What does that mean? He's going to bring forth justice to the nations. It is popular today to talk about social justice. And I would define social justice as taking the cause of the weak and advocating for them. So taking the cause of the weak and advocating for them against the strong. That would be my rough definition of social justice today. And should we do that? Absolutely. Yes. There are implications of the gospel in how we advocate for the weak on behalf of the strong. But be careful about reading your view of justice into the Bible. 
Because when the Bible talks about justice here, it's referring to God's justice, the justice that comes in line with God's law. And do you know what that justice does? Far from creating a division of two kinds of humanity, one weak and one strong, one rich and one poor, it flattens all humanity out and says all humanity is under this curse that we actually read up on the board when we first started here that we cannot in our own righteousness come before God. And we are damned outside of this Savior, Jesus Christ, coming. So Jesus, in a sense, will come to bring that justice. He will either, it says in the Bible, condemn the world because they have not believed in him, or he will be the escape from that condemnation by becoming the condemnation himself. Either way, do you know what he's doing? He's bringing God's justice to the world. He is bringing his righteousness and his justice. And I, I, we have to be careful of reading our 21st century ideas into this. There are places to talk about the divisions in our society in Scripture. There are places to talk about the poor. But we have to keep in context what this servant is actually doing, lest we make out of him something different than what he originally was there to do. And we don't want to do that with the Bible. So let's move on. Verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. What I'm understanding there is that this verse means that Jesus has no self-promotion in his ministry. There was nothing that he would do that was actually promoting himself. He isn't shouting from the rooftops to declare what he is doing. He has no PR agent. There's so much that I want to say here in, in regards to this. I'm going to stop because of time. But there is so much to talk about in the way that Jesus did ministry. And it even applies to our church today in the way that we do ministry. But let's move on because of time. Isaiah 42, verse 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now we see what kind of ministry this servant is going to have. Notice that he is characterized by gentleness. Do you see that there in the text? You see the gentleness there? And don't forget that two chapters earlier in Isaiah 40, verse 11, we saw this verse. Here's the verse. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And those verses were speaking about God the Father. And here we have the servant that is carrying the same characteristics as God the Father. It's been a regular attack on Christianity for the past 2,000 years that God the Father seems angry and that Jesus seems the gentle, merciful one. That's been a long-time attack on Christianity. But what's the point here? The point is that the servant, Jesus Christ, is living with the same character and reign as God the Father. They are one. They are the same. Now, what does this talk about reeds? Do you see there? A bruised reed he will not break. What is happening here? Reeds in that day used to be used for structural support. In fact, you would put a bunch of reeds together and it would make thatch. And thatch was used to be able to put up on a roof, to be able to protect you from the elements. You would typically put it up there and, and they, they, would be, um, they would be supportive. But if one of those reeds had a bend in it, if one of those reeds had a little bruise in it, and you could see a little discoloration in the reed, it was not going to be helpful for structural support. And so what somebody typically did is if they were building thatch and they came across one of these reeds that had in the middle of it this, this, this gushy part, they would simply fold it in half so that it wouldn't be used anymore in the thatch, and then they would dry it out and throw it in the fire because what is a reed good for? It's good for burning if you don't use it for thatch. And so here is a situation where he comes across now, Jesus comes across a reed that is bruised. He comes across a reed that isn't good for the purpose that a reed is supposed to be good for. 
And the alternative of that reed is that you throw it in the fire. And here is Jesus now coming across one of these bruised reeds. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't break it. He doesn't bend it in half and dry it out and throw it into the fire. Here's Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Let's ask ourselves this question about Paul and then about us. Are we bruised reeds? Here's what, here's what Jesus says about, or here's what the Word says about Paul. Paul speaking here to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 12 and 13, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Bruised? Useful for God's purposes? Not at all. Completely contrary to useful. Skip down to verse 15. Why did Jesus appoint Paul into his service? Let's read on. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save bruised reeds, sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me... As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, don't miss in that verse the for this reason. Do you see it there? Paul is telling us why Jesus saved him. We never get that info in the Bible. It's so rare to get that information. Why did somebody get saved? Here's Paul saying, here's why. Because I'm a bruised reed. And he wants to display his perfect patience towards me as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words... So that other sinners, other bruised reeds would see that at some point. Maybe you've seen that text before. Maybe you're seeing it now for the first time. Would see this verse here in the Bible and would realize that the most bruised of all reeds, which is what Paul is declaring about himself, has been saved. Has not been folded over and thrown into the fire and that you would say if he didn't break Paul who was a persecutor of Christians I don't know anybody in this room who persecutes Christians or who has maybe he won't break me that's the whole point of what Paul is trying to say and if you say that you would be right Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. But notice that all of these reeds in the example are coming to him. Coming to him, presenting themselves to him and saying, here I am, a bruised reed, not fit for the purposes for which I was created. What will you do with me? And you know what our promise is from Scripture? He will not break you. He is in the business of loving bruised reads. Isaiah 42, verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Notice the word discouraged there. Believe it or not, this is the same Hebrew word as bruised. Can you believe that? Totally different translation in the English. Same Hebrew word. What's the point there? And I'm going to put it up there so you can see. There's a, uh, on the screen there. Uh, the two blues, I think. It's blue in that color there. Those, that's the same. I know that that doesn't look like that to you, but those, that's the same Hebrew root word. 
Um, some of you like to see, uh, see the work, so there it is. So what's the point here? Jesus uses bruised reeds, but he will not become bruised himself. Jesus will not become worn out himself. Jesus will not succumb to the same pressures of life and temptation that you and I succumb to. The servant will not. He will remain useful for the purposes of his father. He will remain useful in that thatch that his father is building. He is the perfect reed. He does not get bruised. But you know what we're about to see in Isaiah 53? He was bruised for our transgressions. Now your mind is going, wait a minute, was he bruised or wasn't he bruised? And the Bible wants you to do exactly that. Exactly that. Ponder that. Consider that. Because here's the crazy mystery of Scripture. Jesus did not sin, and yet sin was upon him. We've talked about it already. He did not sin, and yet he died, which many of you were with us when we talked about the fact that death only comes because of sin. This is the great mystery of Jesus Christ. He did not do any of those things, but it was upon him. And so, we serve this God who is a perfectly straight, workable, usable reed. He is the perfect example of what we were all supposed to be. And yet here is he looking at us, a bunch of bruised reeds, and he will not break us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you believe that this afternoon, you will run to him and you will run away from your idols. Because your idols will destroy you. But he'll take you and not break you and care for you and hold you, to use the Isaiah 40 now metaphor, as a sheep up to his bosom, it says. He will carry you and care for you. And God is simply saying in his mercy right now to you and I, here are the idols, here's what they do, here's my servant, here's what he does. You choose. Which would you rather be? And may we find, by God's Holy Spirit, the logic in our brains to know the truth about both of these things and to simply choose from this point on forevermore, Jesus, I'm choosing you and I'm putting aside my idols. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christians who are walking with idols, let them go. Please, let them go. Be free and love Christ, and aim for Him. And if you are in here this afternoon, and you've not yet put your trust in Christ, don't go after these idols. God has made it so abundantly clear from His Word that they will not ultimately satisfy you, but ultimate satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Let's pray. God, I pray, by Your Holy Spirit, You would come and bring conviction to this room. Remind us of our need of you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we need you and we come to you, every one of us, as bruised reeds. So come and do what you have said you will do according to your, your word, which is to hold us and keep us and even use us and not break us. May we trust you enough that we can come to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.